This is what Paul then says here in verse 11. But you were washed. Like something happened to you. You were on your way to hell, but Christ stepped in. He picked you up. He washed you. He cleansed you. He sanctified you. He justified you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So that the bad news is sinners do not go to heaven. The good news is, is that Jesus came to save sinners. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. All right, First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter nine. And we're going to continue in our study. We'll be in verse 24. We are going to finish the chapter this evening. All right. I know. Big steps. Big steps. So let's read it and then we will pray. It says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become uh, disqualified. All right, a lot of good, good stuff. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for tonight and just the opportunity to worship together. Um, Lord, as we just hear each other's voices, we're encouraged, Lord, that we're not alone in this fight, in this walk uh, with you. And so, Lord, we pray as we get into your word, God, that you would speak to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would guide our time, Lord, that your grace and your mercy would come uh, through and from your word tonight. We would sense your presence. We would um, sense your Holy Spirit tugging in on our heart, moving in our heart. Um, and Lord, we're thankful, God, that you, you want to meet us and you want to speak to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that tonight. And God, that you would uh, move as you, as you will. Do with us as you will tonight, Lord. We want to be uh, open and willing to obey you tonight. So, Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we studied the majority of chapter 9. We didn't quite finish it. Wanted to make sure that we spent time on this section of Scripture. But um, Paul is continuing to answer the questions of the church in Corinth. And as we have studied this book, there has been a phrase that the Apostle Paul has used many times. And it's a phrase, do you not know? It's come up multiple times. It's actually used 10 times in the book. Um, and what it's conveying is that there's some things we should know. Like, it's not like a secret. <laughs> there are some things that we should know. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, if, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, the Apostle Paul says that there are some things that we should absolutely know in the sense that these are foundational truths. He uses this phrase 10 times or something like that, but tonight we want to look at just five of them, and we want to go back where it starts in chapter 3 and work our way to where we are currently. But he uses this phrase, and he's using it in a way that we, that we would say, like, wait, you mean that you've never tried this, or you, you've never done this, or you don't actually know this? Um, this is something that you should know. Like, if we've, you know, someone you've met, like, you've never tried I met someone the other week who've, who's never had a hamburger before in their life. And they're in their 20s. They're in their 20s. 
sad existence, really. But, but just, you know, they'd never tried it. Like, why, why haven't you tried it? I met someone, too, who'd never had a mango. Like, no, I've never had a mango. And you're like, what do you mean you've never had a mango? Like, how, see? How do you not just enjoy God's creation or whatever? Or, you know, those who say I don't drink coffee, you're like, what? No condemnation, but come on. But what, that's what Paul is saying. You, you got to know this. Like, you need to know this. You should know this. And I want you to know this. And God wants you to know this. He's saying that this is a fundamental truth. It's foundational to our lives as Christians. And so we want to look at what the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Christians, expects them to know. There's an expectation as he writes to them. And found, we find our first one in chapter 3, verse 16. If you want to turn there. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So the first thing that the Apostle Paul wants us to know or expects us to know is this, that you are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. The Apostle Paul expects us to know that we are the dwelling place of the Lord, that God lives inside of me. Have you ever noticed how weird that sounds to someone who doesn't know Jesus? You're like, listen, God lives inside me. They're like, oh my gosh. But like in our terminology, we, we use it all the time as Christians. Like, yes, Jesus lives inside me. Or the words that we would use often in children's ministry would be, Jesus lives within my heart. And the Apostle Paul, refer, uh, he referenced our body earlier as the tent, which is what the original temple was. Now, our body is a tent in that it's a shell. It breaks down. It falls apart. We're ultimately going to a new home, which is heaven. This is built for earth. We're going to shed this body off someday, and we're going to get a new one. And everyone said, hallelujah. Unless you have great metabolism, and you're like, whatever. I like this one. But if you don't, then you know. So Paul references the body to the tent. And like I said, the tabernacle was simply a mobile dwelling place of the Lord. It was a tent. In the book of Exodus, it moved with the people, but yet was set apart from the people. It was a, a specific place where the holiness of God would dwell. And when the Bible describes Jesus coming and that he dwelt with us, it says that he tabernacled amongst us, that he dwelt with us, he lived among us. And that we now have become the movable tent and dwelling place of God. The original picture there of the tabernacle is what Christ would then take up residence in our own heart. Now the temple or the tabernacle had a specific use and design. The idea is that we as the temple of God are now also set apart or dedicated for the worship and the service of the Lord. And that is what the temple was meant for. It was dedicated to God. It was, it was a place where people could encounter the Lord. It was a place where the Spirit of God would descend and consume the sacrifice for sin. It was a place where people who, um, to the outside world or to the Gentile world, the Jewish people would use that place as a way, a, a beacon or a light to those who did not know God, that this is where you could come to get to know the true and living God. That this is where he is. Now, that has was a picture of what was to come. And Paul says, we are the dwelling place of God. That he now lives among his people in the real sense that when you are born again, we're revived in our soul by the Spirit of God. He lives in our heart. He, he takes up residence within me. And in the same way that the temple was set apart for the things that were holy and the things that were of worship unto God, so the Christian is dedicated to the worship and the service of the Lord. 
That's what Paul is, is describing to us. He's helping us to realize and understand that this points us to the purpose of our existence. Have you ever wondered what the purpose of your existence is? Not that I know exactly, like, this is what, you know, have you ever seen that movie, Soul? So, it's a little too much um, for us as human beings. I don't know, for me, I was like, oh my gosh. If you haven't seen it, it hits you like the purpose of every soul is like some weird thing here on earth. Like, your purpose is piano, and your purpose is this, and you're like, if you don't find your purpose, ah, it's a little too much for kids. It's a little much for me, and I'm 35, and I'm watching this like, You know, Paul's helping us to realize when he says that we are the temple of God, that means for us, this is the purpose of our existence. He's saying that we're expected to be a participant in serving the Lord, that we're dedicated and devoted for the worship of God, for the service of the Lord. Have you ever wondered, like, why, why when I get saved, am I not just immediately taken to heaven? You ever thought, like, that would be so much easier. Like, Jesus, I ask you into my heart, and you're like, boom, right there. You're like, yes. Oh, man. So stoked I got saved. Why are we still here? Exactly. Because there's purpose. God has purpose for us. We're dedicated unto the Lord for the service of the Lord, that people would see us and see Christ in us. That's why we're still here. When God's done with you, he'll kill you and take you to heaven. But until then, sorry, like, oh my gosh, isn't that kind of true? Like, all right, you're done. And it's like over, like God takes you. But listen, as the mobile tabernacle of God and that he dwells, remember when, when Jesus said that and why he said to his disciples, it is good that I go away. You ever thought like, why would the physical presence of Jesus going away be a good thing? Because the Spirit of God would no longer be contained to a geographic location. Because the gospel is designed to spread throughout the entire world. And the way that God has is designed it is that we would be the carriers of it. That we would take it to the uttermost parts of the world, including your workplace, including your home, wherever you go, the gospel goes there too as an ambassador, as a light. You are the temple of God. He dwells in you. And that also means that there are certain things that don't come into it. That means that this is dedicated for the holiness of God. This is dedicated unto the worship of God. And so we exist so that others can encounter Jesus, the indwelt spirit of God that's in us, consecrated to the Lord, so that ministry can take place. The second one is found, number two, is found in chapter 5, verse 6. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So the Apostle Paul expects us to know something about leaven. Um, leaven is, is like yeast. It's designed to make dough rise. Because, it's rather, because of its rather um, per, pervasive influence and effect, it permeates throughout an entire piece of dough. That's, that's what it is. It's been likened to a type or a picture of sin throughout the Bible. We always liken sin to leaven. And this is where Paul's saying, do you not know that a little bit of it goes a long way? It's pervasive in nature. It's pervasive in influence and its effect. And what he's helping us to understand is that sin cannot be contained or confined. It must be eradicated. 
Like, you can't just draw a fence around sin in your life and be like, it only sits right here. It doesn't affect anything else. Right? If we, if we were next week cooking and, and let's say I'm making chili for you guys and I'm stirring this big pot of chili and I suddenly just like sneeze right into the, into the bowl or the pot and I'm like, don't worry, I got it. Like it's all gone. And I just scoop out like that section I sneezed in. No, like the whole thing has been affected. The whole system has been ruined, right? It all has to be tossed, unless you're like, no, I'm cool. But like most of the time, you would appreciate that I, it's not like a hair, my beard falls in and you're like, yeah, there it is. And I, I pull that out. Like, it's, it's cool. I got the one. But when I just full on man sneeze into this thing, it doesn't just go into one spot. It affects the entirety of it. Do you understand that sin is just like that? That when God created this world and he created this system, sin affected the system. Not in just one area, but it affected the entirety of the system. To where every drive and every need that we have in our life is actually affected by sin. And we talked about it with sexuality. We've talked about a lot of different things. Food, um, whether it's uh, companionship or dating. All of those aspects of our life have been affected by sin. And so when Jesus came, he didn't come and just remove that one section and kind of remove that part, but Jesus came to renew the entire system because sin has affected all. And so what Paul is helping us to understand is that leaven or sin itself, it cannot be contained, but it spreads throughout our body like cancer. It just takes over. Sin works like leaven. It works from the inside and it affects the whole being as it flushes itself out through our actions. So your pride doesn't just affect the way that you speak or the way that you think. It affects the way that you act and the way that you carry yourself. Your secret sin or whatever you got going on, which we all have, and that's like the bad news is like we're all sinners. The good news we'll get to you in a minute, but the point is, is that sin affects the entire being. So what do we then do? Look what he says uh, later in the text. He says, um, here we go. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. What does Paul call you? He calls you a lump. <laughs> a new one but he calls you a lump since you truly are unleavened. What do we do? If, if we understand that sin, like leaven, it permeates the entirety of it and we see the effects of it as it rises to the surface and causes, it affects everything that's within that dough. It says the same thing of our sin, it affects everything in our life. So what do we do? We need to purge it out. Do you not know, he says to them? Like, they were, remember in chapter five, he's talking about someone who has a, a sexually immoral relationship with like their stepmom. And he's like, and they're like, oh, we're just so loving. We're so accepting. And Paul says, do you not understand how like tragic this is? Do you not realize like how this is affecting the entire body of Christ? This needs to be purged out. This needs to be taken out, meaning this needs to be removed. In fact, that guy and his stepmom need to be physically removed from the church because you are a new lump. You're unleavened. 
truly un- unleavened. He says, when Jesus came, when he comes into our lives, we're a new lump, meaning that we've been set free. The system's been recreated, redeemed unto the Lord. We live lives, and, and Jesus has saved us from our sin, and he's removed our sin. No longer, it doesn't have a place in our heart anymore. When Jesus comes into our life, he renews us, he removes sin, he forgives sin. As far as the east is from the west, we're a new creation in Christ, meaning that sin doesn't have a place anymore. When before we had a a certain bookshelf where all of our sins had a nice, neat little place, Jesus comes in and just blows that all up and says, no longer is there a place in my holy temple for sin. And so he says, purge that out. We need to understand that God has called us to a life of holiness. Now, we all struggle with sin. We all deal with sin. There's no one perfect in this room. We'll get to that more in a minute. And I don't want you to think, like, I'm up here, like, yeah, man, I've purged every little sin out of my life. Like, I'm, I'm totally cool. <laughs> it's not true at all. Super big sinner. Just hang out with me for, like, five minutes. <laughs> but it has to be uprooted and it has to be removed. And Paul uses Passover, then, to illustrate his point. Now, Passover, if you read on, he says, Therefore, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread and sincerity and truth. He uses Passover to communicate something to these non-Jewish people. What, is, what picture is he painting? Remember, Passover came as a result of Israel being set free from slavery in Egypt. In one day, that final plague where the angel of death could take the life, uh, would take the life of the firstborn of every household unless the blood of the lamb was placed over the doorpost of the house. Remember, Israel's been enslaved for 40 years. Um, the Lord tells them, like, that's it. We're done. Pharaoh's going to break tonight. I'm sending the angel of death. Everyone who does not have the blood of the lamb on the door will lose their firstborn son. And so there was a great outcry in Egypt, and that's the day where Pharaoh let the people go. But Passover was instituted that night as the Lord, the angel of death, passed over those homes that had the blood. And here's what Paul's is going to use. I should breathe more, like when I talk. (laughs) I'm always like, I don't want to talk too long. And then I end up like hyperventilating. Later, when I get home, I'm like, why am I so lightheaded? It's because I'm not breathing. Um, When they were to sacrifice the lamb, they took the blood, and then they put it over the doorpost. They were then to cook the lamb, and they were to consume all of it. And God gave them very specific instructions on what to do while eating this meal. They were to eat it with sandals on their feet, belt around their waist, and staff in hand. Meaning, they they were supposed to be ready to leave, like at any minute. And Paul uses this illustration that we've been saved and cleansed by the blood. Now you must start walking. Like that's what it is a picture of, that we've been saved by Christ. We've been washed in the blood. Now what? You got to start walking with Jesus. Because what happened after Passover, they're set free in one day. In one day that they've been set free from their bondage, that it would have been 40 years, right, of bondage or 400 years of slavery. And here they are set free in just one day, but for the next 40 years in which the Lord would be removing Egypt from the people's hearts. As much as Israel needed to be free from Egypt, for the next 40 years, God would be removing the longing for Egypt in their own heart. 
They'd become so consumed in that culture with the way things were. Remember when they would get stuck, they're like, oh, if only we were back in Egypt where they had leeks and garlic. Like, that's what I think about too. Like, oh man, I love leeks. No, like no one cares about leeks. But for them, they were like, that's what we want. We want flesh. We want this. Um, who cares if they whipped us and enslaved us and killed our babies? Like, woo, at least we ate. And that's what God for the next 40 years was taking Egypt out of them and removing that that from them. Alan Redpath, he says, it takes but a moment to make a convert. It takes a lifetime to manufacture a saint. What is Paul describing to us? That our life, after you come to Christ, is a lifetime process of becoming more like Jesus. That Jesus is in the business of every single day exposing sin, revealing it to us in our own heart, and he's removing it and healing it from us. And he wants to do that even this week. Hopefully it's happening, you saw it last week, you're like, man, I'm really prideful. I'm like super selfish. It's not just like for your awareness, it's like awareness to your sin month. It's, it's with the hopes of you confessing it, giving it over to the Lord, repenting and turning from it. That's what God is in the business of doing. He's, he's saved you in a moment. You are saved by the blood of Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. Now walk with Jesus. And on, along the way, God is going to pull out of you all of that Egypt or all of that world that's within us that we've picked up for so long. Because God in his goodness loves you too much to let you stay as you are. Now, Leaven permeates our life, and so God desires to expose it and reveal it and remove it. But leaven is also seen in the positive in Matthew chapter 13, verse 33. It says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is likened, or like leaven, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And that's all he said about it. The kingdom of God is like a woman who took three measures of it, put it in these sacks of flour, and she left it there until it was all leavened. It affected all of it. Jesus likens that the kingdom of heaven works like leaven as well. It's small, but it spreads everywhere. It works internally and becomes evident to everyone as it rises. Your life is a tool to explain how the kingdom of God works. That when Jesus came in, like leaven, it has spread to every part of your life. It affects your relationships. It affects your money. It affects your love. It affects everything in your life. Suddenly you have a new king. And so leaven must be, first of all, purged out in order that we might become a new lump unto the Lord. And Paul says, you need to know this. You are new in Christ. You need to understand. We need to know that this is foundational for our life. The third one is found in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. It says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know? She doesn't even know. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? What does Paul want us to know or hopes that we know or expects us to know, is that God's word governs our life. God's word governs our life. He says that at some point in glory, every human and angelic being will stand before Jesus to give an account, 
And the saints, that's you and I. If you're a Christian tonight, you are a saint. Uh, if you're not, then you ain't. But if you are a saint, if you're a believer in Jesus, that's who you are. That's the reference unto you and to those who have gone before us. Now, when Jesus gives his judgment on judgment day, it says that the Christian or the saints will be there with him. We will be governing with him, judging those things as well. And when Jesus gives his judgment, it will not be based on how he feels that day. It's not like Jesus is going to wake up with a headache and be like, oh, man, they're going to get it today. Everybody, oh my goodness. And he's not, that's not how he, he's not going to wake up and be like, I feel merciful, super, super merciful. In fact, my mercy has triumphed over my judgment. <laughs> I just, that wasn't even my notes. I threw that in for you. So, it's like, so he's going <laughs> to, sorry. It's like the worst inside joke ever. Um, we've been debating this topic for like three years, right? It's been fun. All right. So, I got off track, sorry. <laughs> Hallelujah, all right. Oh man, I, I cracked myself up and that's why I'm trying to stop. Because it's not funny to you at all, but it's really funny to me, sorry. Okay, so Jesus is gonna give his judgment, but it's gonna be, is my face red already? Okay, but it will be based upon the word of God. Jesus is gonna base his judgment off the word of God. And we will participate with him in this. Look at what verses 4 and 5 say. He says, If then you have judgments concerning the things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Right? He says, I say this to your, to your shame. Paul's explained to us that if we're going to determine good from bad, wise and unwise, better from best, that we are to use God's word to do that. Like he says, we're going to judge angels at some point. And the way that Jesus is going to do it is from the word of God. He says, that's also what we should do. That if you're like, I don't know what decision to make. Like, I don't know what to do. Should I do this or should I do this? Well, what does the word of God say? Oh, crazy. This is a revolutionary idea. Like Pastor John said the other night, like if you need wisdom, God gives it to you. Through his word, through his revealed word. You don't have to like be all crazy, go up on a mountain fast for 19 days and hope that God reveals like whether or not you should buy a Prius or a Camry. <laughs> God doesn't care, by the way. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> should I buy a Prius or a Camry? God's like, just drive. Like, I don't care. Go to church. Um, yeah, we're going to edit that part out. Okay. But we need to determine our decision-making. It's based on the word of God. He expects us to be people who look at life through the lens of Scripture. Like that's, We need to be people who look at life through what the Bible says. Because it's not just a book of like how-tos or a book to like help you feel good about yourself in the morning. And you're like, I love starting my devotions in the book of Numbers because, man, it just revolutionizes my whole life. And it just really impacts me. No, no. That's not why we do it. You're like, it, doesn't, it makes me feel so good when James is telling me how much of a piece of junk I am. And how, <laughs> how big of a sin. You're like, oh, it's just, oh, man. Like, it's, it's why, it, why do we do this? It's because it governs our life directs the way that we live. It's to be the, the roadmap for us. It's to, be, it's to be the thing that we look to and say, well, the Bible says not to do this because your feelings are gonna tell you, I feel like I should do this. Yeah, you should never be driven by your feelings, right? 
Zach Tucker taught an amazing message on feelings and emotion. Emotion is a part of who we are. God has given them to us, but they are never meant to be the engine of our life. If anything, they're lights on a dashboard that say something's wrong. Check your heart. And, and that's why we look to the word of God. God, I'm angry and I want to beat someone up right now. Should I do that? And God says, no. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. Mercy does try over judgment. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, that's what I was saying. You should really, like, look at God's word. Moving on. The fourth one. Moving right along. We're already on number four. And this one's kind of rough. You ready? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, I don't know if you uh, have heard this lately, but there's a, there's a, a lie out there that hell does not exist and that people don't go there. That's a really big lie. Jesus said multiple times, talked about hell. The apostle Paul is saying to us here, sinners do not go to heaven. And I'm not saying that in the sense that like none of us are going to heaven. He's saying those that are sinners and practicing in lawlessness that have not had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. He lists just some of the acts of unrighteousness there. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't, don't be deceived here. If, this per, if someone is practicing these things, I want you to know that their eternal destiny is not secured in heaven. Because sin drives us away from God. God does not send you to hell. Your sin, unrepentant, unforgiven, sends you to hell. Hell is a real place. And Jesus Christ has done everything, everything for us that no one would ever have to go there. Ever. And so if someone says, like, I don't believe in hell, it doesn't exist. Paul says, do you not, I don't want you to be deceived. Church, don't be deceived. Don't, don't go on, like, believing what everyone's saying here. I want you to know, we need to know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul expects us to know that sinners don't go to heaven. Now, that's bad news because all of us are sinners, aren't we? That's bad news. But that's not where it stops. Look at verse 11, and such were some of you. He, this list by no means is exhaustive of unrighteousness. He just lists some, and this is the people that were in the group reading this. They're like, oh man. And then he goes on to say here, and such were some of you. I'm talking to you. You know who you are. And you're like, this is really rude, and you shouldn't be saying these mean things. And this is what Paul then says here in verse 11, but you were washed. Like something happened to you. You were on your way to hell, but Christ stepped in. He picked you up. He washed you. He cleansed you. He sanctified you. He justified you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So that, the bad news is sinners do not go to heaven. The good news is, is that Jesus came to save sinners. Sin separates us from a holy God. However, this is only half the story. And when it says in verse 11, and it connects us back to verse 9. It connects the thought here. And such were some of you. 
The message of the Bible is that sinners can have their sins forgiven and washed away and can go to heaven by placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus went to the cross, bore our sins and the penalty for our sins so that we could have eternal life, but also that Christ from the inside out would transform our lives. And the invitation is extended to any and to all who would receive him by faith. That is the gospel. It's the gospel message. You have heard the gospel message tonight and you're accountable to hearing it. Now, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. All you have to do is is say, Jesus, I believe that you lived, you died, and you rose again, and I want you to be my Lord and Savior. It's that easy. It is that easy to have your eternal destiny changed. And so many people have such a hard time with that. Why, how could it be so easy? Especially when you know how sinful you are. Like, I know how sinful I am, and you know how sinful you are, but you don't know how sinful I am, which I appreciate. And, you, you know, anyway. But... Paul is, is helping us to understand, guys, there is a real devil, there is a real hell, and he really hates you, and he really wants to drag you to hell with him. Like, he doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're a girl. He doesn't care if you're 10. He doesn't care if you're, uh, you have a disorder. He, doesn't, he does not care. doesn't care about who you are as a person. As long as you don't go to heaven, that's what he cares about. He's going to drag you to hell with him. Have you ever been to a pool party? Now, I've used this Use this analogy before, so don't stop me if you've heard it. Have you ever been to a pool party? As a youth pastor, I've gone to many pool parties. Um, back in the day, junior high ones were usually the worst. And, um, you know, it's kind of weird swimming in front of parents. I'm like, yeah, I'm like hairy chested. And now I get up to preach and they're like, I can't really see you any other way. So normally, like, I wouldn't swim. I'm like, I'm just going to hang. I'm here to serve. Like, I'll cut pizza. Like, you know, whatever. Hey, parents or whatever. But what's funny about a pool party is how incredibly loud it is, right? Kids are like, ah, blah, yeah. And you always, okay, this is always what happens. It gets really quiet at a pool party. Everything's crazy, and all of a sudden, there's whispering happening, and you're like, okay, here we go. I'm going in the pool. So I take my phone out of my pocket, my wallet out of my pocket. I'm just getting ready, because I know I'm going in. But here's my attitude, okay? If I'm going to suffer in wet clothes all night, in wet jeans, everybody else is going to do it, too. So I'm grabbing, like, kids all grab me, and they're, like, pulling me in. I'm grabbing chain link fences and ripping them out of the, I'm going to grandma's, baby strollers. <laughs> If I'm, going, if I'm going down, like everyone is coming with me and they will feel my pain, okay? It's the same thing. Devil does the same thing. He knows he's going down. Like he knows that hell is his final destination. He knows that time is short. He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care what your situation is. He just wants to take you with him. So understand what Paul is saying here. He's not saying this in order that we would like to just be straight up offensive. He's doing this with the, the purpose of helping us to understand that sin is really, really bad. But he says there's good news as well. You have to know the bad news if you're gonna understand the good news. Now the fifth thing tonight is found in our text in chapter five, or sorry, chapter nine, verse 24. Do you not know? That those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Verse 24, he wants us to know, first of all, that there is a race. You are in the race. There's a prize. And to run as though you wanted it. 
How many of you ever played a game with someone who doesn't want to win? They don't care. It's like the worst thing ever. You always have that kid on your team who's like, guys, let's just all get along. You're like, dude, shut up, man. Why are you even here? If you want to play, go sit down. Like, you're better over there on the bench than over here with us. Like, we'll play down a man. I don't care. It's my attitude anyway. Is anyone else competitive in this room? All right, cool. So you know. So you know. I want to win. I enjoy winning. It feels better than losing. Enough about me. Let's talk about you. Paul wants us to know, first of all, there is a race. And we are in this race. Um, and there's a prize that we need to go after. People who are, are successful in athletics are successful because of their self-control. They train, they're disciplined, they work hard to obtain the ring or the belt, or in Paul's case, a crown. Now the Greeks loved sport and Olympics and all that stuff, and they would compete, and when they would win, they would get this crown. It's a perishable crown. It was made of leaves. All the branches were twisted into these crowns and laurels and placed upon their head. Eventually those things would fade and they would be gone. And Paul says, we run this race, understand that you're in one, and you're running for a prize, but it doesn't perish. There's an incorruptible prize that's laid up for us in heaven. And in this race with this prize, it's a prize and a reward that cannot be taken, nor will it fade away in glory. And we should be running after that. That's what we should be running for in this life. Now, he says in Philippians 4.1, says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. He calls them his crown. He says, in this life, right now, what, what, uh, running this race and preaching the gospel and all these things and all the sacrifices that we've made, you are the prize of my life. You are the crown upon my head. In, in, this, in this right now fading life, that, that, that is the immediate prize. Paul would, would say that people are the crown. Now, if you think about it, when the Bible says that we want to send things ahead, you've ever heard pastors say, like, we want to send them ahead. And you're like, how can I send this car ahead? Like, it's not going to end up in heaven. Um, or my dog, like, I want to send it ahead. Like, we can't take anything from this life and pass it to the next, can we? If you have like a sweet watch that you just love, you're like, I hope this is with me in glory. It's not going to be. Like all of it's going to burn with a fervent heat, including that sweet ride that you have or whatever. It's all going to burn. And, and we all, we've heard messages on that too. Like, hey, man, it's all going to burn. So when you have a new car and you scratch it and the guy who's with you is like, hey, man, it's all going to burn. You're like, dude, not the time. <laughs> I bought this with my own money. And I parked in the back of the parking lot so no one come near my car. And here I am getting hit with a shopping cart. Like, God hates me, so why don't you just go away? You know, that's our attitude, right? But the guy's like, hey, man, it's all going to burn. You're like, well, all right, cool. Let's burn your car. See how you feel. But what, what Paul's getting at, what I'm getting at, is that the only thing that we can send ahead in glory are people. Do you know that the Bible calls us the treasure of the earth? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus told a parable where a man was plowing a field and he found a treasure within the field. And so he sold uh, everything he had so that he could buy this field so that he could get the treasure within it. 
It was a picture of what Christ has done for us, that Jesus left glory, stepped out of glory, bought the world for the treasure that's within it. That's you and I. Everything else is going to burn. Everything's going to go away. But the thing that lasts are human beings. And Paul says that's the only thing in this life. The crown is that knowing that when I get to heaven, I'm going to see you there. And that's what I'm chasing. That's why I'm running. That's why I'm living the way that I'm living, because I want you to go to heaven. Paul would say it in Thessalonians as well. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. He says the reward presently is people. But he also talks about the future crown and the reward. In 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, it says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He calls himself a drink offering. And you're like, what the heck is a drink offering? It would be coupled with the, the animal sacrifice. It would be a mixture of wine and oil, and it would be poured out with it. It was complementary. It, it wouldn't come by itself, but it would always come alongside of the other sacrifice. It would assist or enhance the offering. And as he made self-sacrifice, Paul's saying, as Christ has made the ultimate sacrifice, and I come alongside of that ministry and every sacrifice that I've made, everything that I've done for the furtherance of the gospel, everything that I've lived my life in such a way that would glorify Jesus. He says, that is what's going to bring about the reward in heaven where Jesus, I stand before him and he takes that crown and he puts it on my head. So there's a future crown that Paul was talking about. It was a reward for those who live as a drink offering, whose finish was well, who kept going. And Paul says, I want to run in such a way to receive that prize. But there's also a reward for those who endure temptation. If you look at the book of James, chapter 1, he talks about those who endure temptation. It's something that, uh, temptation is something that tries to lure us out of the boundaries of, that God has given us. And so temptation, um, a lot of times it gets stronger the closer you get to it. And so a lot of times the best thing to do is get away from it um, in order to overcome temptation. But there's also that word endure is the idea of a person who in, in a intense pressure under temptation has the resolve to say no in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says that person who holds fast, James says there's a reward. There's a crown that comes from that as well. 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4, he says, Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion or willing, or, or but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So Peter talks about another, another crown that comes, and that's from you serving Jesus and getting no recognition for it. Often, like, the most rewarding thing in serving the Lord is that people get saved, and you're like, oh, that's amazing. That's such a reward. It's amazing. But there's also the other aspect of serving in the church, and, like, no one cares. Um, okay. Yeah, it happens. Like, you're serving, you're in children's ministry, and people are like, have no idea what your name is, could care less. They're like, just give me my kids. I'm out of here. 
peace. And, you know, so anywho, there's things like that. Or you spend a week at camp in a, in a dorm room with 47 boys who haven't showered, who are disgusting creatures, and you get home on a Saturday and you have to teach on a Sunday and parents are like, why are you late? And you're like, I don't even, Peter says there's a crown for that in heaven. Like for the points where like no one has cared about the things that you've done or the things that have gone unseen, Peter says Jesus sees those things and you will be, you will be rewarded in heaven. So, so it's motivation again, like, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm serving for. I'm not serving so that like anyone sees and they're like, you're the best servant. The way that you swept up that vomit, wow. Like <laughs> that's not why we're doing things. Jesus even said, don't do that. If you're serving or you're doing something in order to receive the praise of men, you have your reward. Paul says, and Peter says, this is a greater reward. You'll receive a crown in heaven. And what that is, whether it's literal crowns and they're like all stacked on top of each other or they're like in a display case and you get to carry around or they're like little crowns that you put on a key ring that's on your, you know, on your, your toga or whatever. And you're like, here are my crowns or whatever, you know, like, I don't know, but it just says crowns. Usually those go on your head. There's a reward for serving the Lord, rewarded for the lack of reward here on earth. In Revelation 2, uh, 2 chapter uh, verse 10 it says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's another, another reward for those who, are, who suffer persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's the crown of life. And so Paul is saying a lot of things like, hey, we need to know these things. These are the things that as you lose motivation in your walk with Jesus, these are the things you need to read. As you lose motivation to say no to temptation and just like give in, you're like, what's the big deal? Like I'm young, it doesn't matter, it's not affecting anyone. Read these things. Do you not know? Like he's saying it needs to go from just your head to the heart. It needs to come from this place where knowledge becomes not just something we know, it becomes something that we live. It becomes something that takes deep root in the person of who we are, and it becomes how we conduct ourselves. If you're like, man, I'm just looking, I'm Googling everything on what to do, but you haven't looked at the word of God yet, let that be the governor of your life. Let that be the basis and foundation for which you make decisions. Because within it, the principle is, you're going to be blessed. You'll be blessed. And there's many other things, but that's... Uh, that's the things that Paul wants us to know. And what a blessing. So may we be those that continue and strive and run in such a way that we might receive the prize. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And Jesus, we thank you for this time where we can um, worship you and spend time in your presence. And we're thankful, God, that you have written these things down in your word. And um, Jesus, we want to be those that run our race um, as unto you to glorify you and Lord for the prize that's ahead ultimately Lord we know that the prize is you forever in your presence no longer separated from you for for all of eternity or separated by space and time Lord, we're in the very presence of God in the throne room of, of our Lord and so um, Jesus we're so thankful 
that you have made a way for salvation. And Lord, if there's anyone tonight who does not know you, who has yet to confess you as Lord and Savior and repent of their sin, Lord, I pray that you would speak to the heart, God, that you would remind them of how much you love them and how you called them. Um, you've called them out of sin and out of darkness and into light, that you love them enough, that you love them so much that you are willing to lay down your life for them. And so, Lord, for us too that have received you and are walking with you, Lord, help us to keep on walking, knowing that you're working in our lives, God. You're making us new. You're making us more like you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this time. And God, we ask that you would move among us as we worship you.